Wow, you guys sound so great today. A special welcome to you. You've come to Four Corners Church today on a very special day. We have a special guest I'm going to introduce to you in just a moment. But first, I'd like to say hello to all of our guests in the room. When you sat down on the seat, there were some paper gathered together by a pen. And inside the envelope in that packet is a card that looks like this. It's a Connect card. If you're a regular attender, you know to go ahead and pull that out. But if you're our guest, we would like you to go ahead and pull that out as well. And if you'll give us your name and address, this week we will sell your name and address to advertisers. <laughs> no, of course we're not going to do that. What we'll do is if you'll give us your name and address and put this card in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end of our service, we'll send you in the mail some coupons for some free Chick-fil-A. It's our way of saying thanks for being with us. We like to give out God's chicken as a reminder that you are with us. We're really, really glad that you're here. But let me tell you the other reason we use this card. We believe prayer is a really big deal around here. And so if you've came in with things that are on your heart and mind that are bothering you, that are a weight to you, that are a burden, on the back of your card, you can write that prayer request down. And our staff and our prayer team takes prayer very, very seriously. So every week we gather these together, we pray on them. And we would love to join with you on whatever's going on in your life. And if it's something positive, you can write that down too. If you have some feedback for us for the service, you're welcome to write that there. We take it very, very seriously. And if you, we can read your e email, we'll follow up with you if you like as, as well. But there's a final reason why we use this card every week. At the end of our guest's message today, I'm going to come back up and give you what we call next bold steps. There's five options. We, we believe that you come to church not to just be stirred, but to actually grow and to change. I mean, this is not just an emotional crutch for us. We believe that we're growing, and we believe the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is actually working in us to develop us into who he would have us become. And so rather than just getting stirred in a church service, we want to leave with an action plan. So at the end of the talk today, I'm going to give you five options, A, B, C, D, E. And as you want, you can take the pen we provided. That's yours to take home if you like. We'd like you to check whichever box applies. And then again, you put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by a few minutes after that. And then this week, we'll email you. We're not going to bombard you. We're not going to add you to a bunch of stuff. We'll email you about what you said you wanted to do as a gentle reminder in the direction that you want to go. All right? So um, before we get started, I want to uh, just make sure that you're aware. You may have seen the signs when you came into the door today. Um, today's talk and message is going to deal with some things that for some people can be a little triggering. Um, there's some violence or some other stuff going on. And as a result, from time to time, a few times a year, we just declared the service to be a PG-13 environment. So we have incredible kids ministry and preteen ministry. And parents, if you want your kids in here, that's okay. That's on you. But I didn't want to alert you that if you want to use the next few minutes to just get up and take them out the hallway to where it says new family registration, we'd love to serve your kids that way. But if not, that's okay as well. Uh, you've been uh, fairly and duly warned, all right? So let me introduce our guest to you. Uh, our guest um, today, uh, Debbie, if you want to make your way up, Debbie comes to us with her husband Brad today from Knoxville, Tennessee, where she's currently serving. They're currently serving as um, realtors. And uh, Brad's actually a pilot for uh, the pilot um, gas station chain. You guys have seen them. I'm an RVer, and so Pilot also owns um, Flying J, I believe. And so we look for those on the road, Brad, uh, everywhere we go. But Debbie's not here to talk about real estate, and she's not here uh, to talk about her husband's job. Uh, Debbie's here to tell you a story of what happened to her in her life, but also what God did as a result of that. Uh, years ago, uh, I was a chaplain at a local high school here, and um, through a, a crazy series of events, uh, Debbie agreed to come out and speak for our students. In fact, some of them are here today, um, which is just really, really cool for me, uh, given how long ago that was. And she shared a powerful story of God's grace and mercy at work in her life, and 
What are some of the darkest and most troubling um, events that anybody could ever go through? So I would like, if you don't mind, for you to join me in giving Debbie a real warm welcome to Four Corners Church. Debbie, it's all yours. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you. Good morning. I don't do this a lot um, anymore. And so when Ben, when Pastor Ben contacted me, when he tracked me down after like 18 or 19 years or something, and we hadn't been in contact and invited me, I saw it as a sign I needed to be here. So thank you very much. It really is an honor to get to be here with you all today. Um, There's a verse in the Psalms that says, snatch me back from the jaws of death. Save me so that I may praise you publicly. There are a lot of people who over the years have asked me why I continue to share this story and recall and, and recount the worst day of my life, the worst couple of days of my life, uh, and really what ended up kind of spiraling into the worst several months of my life. And the reason I do it is because there was a purpose in why God chose to snatch me out of the jaws of death. He did that through his power, and then through his love and his grace, he allowed me to be able to recover, and I'll spend all of the days of my life praising him publicly and giving him all of the honor and glory for that. That's why I do it. When I was 16 years old, my boyfriend and I were sitting in a parked car on the riverfront in our hometown of Madisonville, Louisiana. Now, I have to just set the scene first. Madisonville, Louisiana is a town that's surrounded by water on three sides and woods on the other side. It's a very tiny little town. Everyone there knew each other. Uh, A lot of us were related to each other. Uh, Madisonville, I thought then and I still believe, is the most perfect town in the whole world. I love it. It'll always be my home. I felt completely safe there. I went to high school in a neighboring town, and, you know, I was at one point a cheerleader. I was on the dance team. I was in the Student Government Association. I was kind of in that popular crowd of of kids and girls. And and also, uh, two years before these events happened in my life, I had become a Christian. I had given my life to Jesus Christ. I really thought that I had it made. I didn't have a perfect life, but it was pretty good. And I had a plan for my life. I never really stopped to think at 16 years old that maybe God's plan was different than my own plan. As Mark and I sat there, uh, Mark was my boyfriend, and I'll tell you this, uh, we had gone, we'd gone, to get a, we'd gone to a movie that night, we had gone to get a milkshake at our local drive-in, and, and we were sitting there in a very, what is typically a very public place. The newspapers would write that we were parked on an isolated lover's lane, not that that would matter, but that's not what happened. You can't read, believe everything that you read in the newspapers or on Facebook these days. So as we sat there, uh, a truck drove up next to us. A couple of men got out and started walking towards our car. I could see them kind of in the distance. Mark had his back to them and couldn't see them. By the time I realized that these were people that we didn't know and asked Mark if he knew them, it was too late. These two men had rushed up to our car and they had guns. One ran around the side of the car and grabbed me around the neck and put a gun to my head. They told us that they were escapees from Angola prison that they had killed before and they would kill again. They told us not to do anything stupid. 
I couldn't do anything stupid or otherwise because I was literally frozen in fear. They forced their way into our car and they drove us out of town. They told us that all they wanted was our car and our money and they were going to let us go and we were good with that. Mark had given them his wallet and, and you know, they never even asked for my purse. I guess I didn't look like I would have any money. Uh, but they drove outside of town, they stopped the car and we thought that they were going to let us go. And that's when things turned even worse. Mark got out of the car and when he turned back in to help me out because I still was just literally frozen in fear. Instead, they hit him in the back of the head with a sawed, the barrel of a sawed-off shotgun and forced him into the trunk of the car. We drove away, and it was during that time that I would be raped for the first time in the back seat of that car. There's a lot that goes through your mind when something like this happens. I've talked with a lot of other girls and women who have experienced it. And some things are unique uh, to me, and some things are very common uh, threads of thought. But I can remember lying in the back seat of that car and wondering, would my parents ever know what happened to me? I remember wondering, would I ever see my family and my friends again? I, in a, in a panicked sort of way, began to, to try to recall the final words that I had spoken to the people I cared about. Had I told my mother that I loved her when I left that night? How had I spoken to my younger sister? She's four and a half years younger than me. Our conversations were not always the most pleasant. I wanted to know, is, would she remember me with kind words or unkind words? And I couldn't remember there were a couple of things that I vowed, though, as I laid there in the back seat of that car that night. One thing was that I would survive. I started regathering my composure, and I vowed that I would survive. I don't believe that that kind of strength comes from a 16-year-old girl from a small town in that circumstance. I believe that God gives us the will to survive before we are ever even born into this world. And he gave it to me that night. The other thing I vowed was that I was going to make these two men pay for what they were doing to me. In just about 15, 20 short minutes, I went from never having seen their faces before in my life to wanting revenge with every bit of strength I could muster up in my body. I hated these two men. Instantly, I hated them. They would drive us to an area just east of Mobile, Alabama. They drove along the coast. It took us a few hours to get there. They had made a couple of stops along the way. They turned off of the interstate, and they drove back up into the woods. They took Mark out of the trunk of the car, and they locked me in the trunk of the car. They took Mark back into the woods, and I'm going to share with you what they did to him, not in any way to glorify the violence, but because I think it's important for you to understand the evil that exists and the evil that was occurring and just how deep we can sink into the depths of despair, but yet still have the mighty hand of God reach down and lift us back up. They hung Mark from a tree. 
They stabbed him in the side numerous times. They burned his body with cigarettes. They slashed his throat five times across, and then they shot him in the back of the head. They shot twice. Thankfully, the second bullet missed him. I'll tell you right now that Mark survived. He was able to survive that attack. He was found, let's see, a day and a half, about a day and a half later, in the woods and airlifted to a hospital in Mobile where he had brain surgery to remove a bullet, which never happened. They weren't able to do that, but where he was able to begin his recovery. Eventually, these two men, after they did this to Mark, they would return to our hometown area. They held on to me for about another 24 hours after this. During this time, I was taken to places in the woods I had never seen before. I was raped repeatedly. I was held overnight in the trailer of a drug dealer. And then, without any explanation, they let me go. They drove me back to my hometown and let me go just outside of our town limits in front of a cemetery where my grandparents are buried today. This was, seemed completely miraculous. Um, it was especially when I would find out that three days before they abducted me, they abducted another young woman. She was 18 years old. Her name was Faith Hathaway. And they took her to one of the same locations where they took me, but where I was only raped there, Faith was brutally raped, and then she was viciously stabbed to death. Faith's parents' greatest fear was that one day people would forget about her. As long as I am alive to be able to share my story, people will not forget about Faith Hathaway. In the aftermath of this, uh, I was, you know, ended up being a, a witness in a trial uh, that was a capital murder trial. They were prosecuting Faith Hathaway for, uh, uh, they were prosecuting Robert Willie and Joseph Vaccaro for, for, uh, Joseph Vaccaro for Faith Hathaway's murder. They had caught them. They, they had run off and, and they ended up catching them in Arkansas. They brought them back. And, and so they were going to stand trial, not only for all of the things they had done to Mark and me, but for Faith Hathaway's murder. And so all of a sudden, I found myself in the midst of that. I never asked for that. I never even understood what capital murder was, what capital punishment was. I thought that the death penalty meant that you went to jail until you died. That's all I knew. And so when there was so much media surrounding this, I wasn't prepared for it at all. You see, nothing like this had ever happened where I lived, where I grew up. We had never known violence like this. I think the worst thing that had ever happened in my hometown was somebody drove too fast through our flashing yellow light. We didn't even have one that turned red and green in my town at the time. As I became the star witness in these trials, I had to endure sitting in front of packed courtrooms over and over and over, and retelling every little detail 
of the things that had happened to me, the words that were said, the evidence that was collected. I was cross-examined on these things. One of the trials was in Baton Rouge. An LSU law school had sent some of their classes to observe. And so as I walked up, I sat on the, in, the, in the stand, in the witness chair. I hadn't looked up, and I had to look up to take my oath. And when I did that, there was a sea of young men out there. One of the newspapers would write in the newspaper that it was the testimony of the 16-year-old girl from Madisonville that put the final nail in Robert Lee Willie's coffin. That's a heavy burden for a 16 or 17-year-old girl to carry into life that I was made to feel responsible for the eventual execution of another human being. After the trials were over, the message was clear that it was time to move on. But really, it was just beginning for me. I began to suffer from what I know today was depression. I didn't understand depression back then. Nobody talked about depression. I probably had post-traumatic stress disorder. Didn't know anything about that. Our town didn't really have doctors. We, we were a small town. We weren't really equipped to handle things like that. So it went untreated. I would eventually drop out of the thing that I was most successful with in my life, and that was school. Three months before graduation, sitting in one of my classes, I was overcome with another anxiety attack, and I just couldn't take it anymore. I felt like every time I walked down the halls at school, everybody looked at me and they knew all of those details, all of those things that I had had to say, those words that had to come out of my mouth in front of all of those people. I lost sight of how God saw me. And I could only see myself through the eyes of what other people must be seeing. Shame, brokenness, dirtiness. That's how I felt. I dropped out of school. After that, I began to abuse alcohol. This was really, I mean, even to this day, the craziest thing for me because my parents were alcoholics. I had seen that. I had seen that alcoholism destroys families. It breaks up marriages. It trashes relationships. And yet here I was doing the same thing, falling into the same pattern of behavior that I had witnessed from my parents. Most of all, I was angry, full of rage. It was just under the surface. I could cover it up for periods of time. And everybody thought that I was doing great. When they would ask how I was doing, I would say, oh, I'm fine. And they built me up and put me on this pedestal. They said things like, she's the strongest teenage girl we've ever known. She's a star witness. She's, you know, bringing about justice for our daughter who was murdered. They were saying all of these things. But underneath, I was full of fear and rage, anger, shame. It was just beneath the surface. And unfortunately, 
periodically, it would just explode, typically in the presence of the people that I loved the most and cared about the most. My younger sister was one of those people that caught a lot of that rage. I'm so blessed today that she's my best friend. She loves me so much and I love her, but our relationship wasn't good for a long time. I think deep down inside of me, if I had to admit something that I'm the most ashamed of, I would say, I was the, I was the kid that did everything right and followed all the rules. You were the one that broke all the rules. Why did this happen to me? Most of all, I felt abandoned by the God that I had entrusted my life to. Where was he when I had my greatest need? I can remember praying throughout my abduction. First, I prayed in shock and bewilderment, God, I need your help. Come and save me. I don't know what I expected, but I remember thinking a SWAT team would be great. And he didn't answer. And then I remember I began to make deals with him. Like, let's make a deal. God, if you do this for me, if you save me now, if you help me now, I'm going to be better at everything. I'm going to be a better sister, a better daughter, a better student, a better servant. You name it. I'm going to earn that. And there was no answer. In the end, my prayers were all in anger and doubt. God, if you really existed, why would you be letting something like this happen to me? If you really existed and if you really cared about me. Over the years, there have been several things that have happened in my life that have made me understand that God did care about me that he was there, that he never did abandon me. I didn't understand, and I still don't completely understand why he chose to let things unfold as they did. But there have been these little things over the years, mostly coming from other people, that have made me understand that just as he promised he would never leave or forsake me, he didn't. One of these little stories is one of my favorites, um, years after what had happened to me, I, I came across, I ran into a sheriff's deputy. Uh, one, this sheriff's deputy was on the team that went to Arkansas to get these two guys to extradite them back to Louisiana. And he shared with me this story of his encounter with Robert Lee Willie, the one that I called the mean one. I referred to them as the mean one and the crazy one before I knew their names. Robert Lee Willie was the mean one and he was the one in charge. And this sheriff's deputy had had an encounter with him. And he asked him, he said, Robert, and he called him by first name because he knew him. This guy had a, a rap sheet a mile long. He had been in jail, in and out of jail since he was a teenager. He said, what we don't understand is why did you let Debbie go? Because if you hadn't let Debbie go, if you had killed her, Mark would have died. We may never have found Faith Hathaway's body for years. We wouldn't have been able to connect you to it. Why did you let her go? And Robert Lee Willie said something that made me sick at first. He told the sheriff's deputy, he said, I don't know why I did it, but I knew when I did do it that I was trading my life for hers. 
And he said, but when I looked into her eyes, there was something different about her. There was just something different. He said, I looked into her eyes and I saw love. It really made me physically ill. And I remember thinking, he didn't see love in my eyes. He saw hatred, vengeance, shame, rage. That's what he would have seen in my eyes because I had a plan if I could see him set that gun down long enough. I had a plan. But then I realized that when Robert Lee Willie looked into my eyes, he didn't see my love because I didn't have any. He saw the love of Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ that was in my heart and had promised to never leave me or forsake me. He saw the love of Jesus Christ look back at him, and it was powerful enough to change the course of those events. It changed the path of destruction that Robert Lee Willie had taken. After the sentences were handed down, they were the harshest sentences that they could have gotten, really. Robert Lee Willie got the death penalty for the murder of Faith Hathaway, and he got numerous life sentences for the things that he did to Mark and me. The other guy got all life sentences, but it was clear they would never spend another day in freedom. Justice had been served. In the, to the greatest extent that justice can be served here on earth, Justice had occurred. Everybody began to go on with their business, and like I said before, I couldn't. Sometimes there's not enough justice on this earth to heal the things that have happened to us in this life. Sometimes justice is just not enough. Some of the senseless things that we see, acts of terrorism, Teenagers who get in car accidents. I have a friend who's lost three children to cancer. All of these things are tragic. And there's just not enough justice to heal us. Justice is good, but it's not enough. What I needed in my life was peace and joy. I wanted the peace and joy back in my life that I had known before these events happened. I wanted to go back in time, but that wasn't possible. So I had to find a way to be able to get that peace and joy back in my life again. Peace came through forgiveness. Forgiveness is a very simple concept, but it can be very difficult to do. C.S. Lewis said that forgiveness is a beautiful word until you're the one that needs to forgive. It's very difficult. On the night of Robert Lee Willie's execution, I realized my life had been in shambles. I was drinking way too much. I had cut myself off from a lot of my relationships. I had harmed a lot of those relationships through my own behavior because I was so angry. I didn't have any room for any love in my heart anymore. 
I remember thinking that night on the night that Robert Lee Willie was supposed to be executed. What if he pays the greatest price that he can pay? And tomorrow morning I wake up and he's gone, but I'm still the same person. I didn't want to be that person anymore. And because of my background as a Christian, I knew that it was wrong to continue to hate him as much as I hated him, especially as he was dying. If I was a Christian, I should have wanted the best for everyone. I should want everyone to be able to be with God in heaven. And I wasn't there. I didn't get there for a long, long time after this. But I knew that I needed to be different. I realized that I either needed to get better or I was going to die one way or the other. I needed to get better or I was going to die. And I think it was that night that I began to surrender my life back to Jesus Christ. When I reflected, the time I had been the happiest in my life was the time between the time that I became a Christian and the time these events had occurred. I was allowing this person that was dying to have complete power over my life. I didn't want that anymore. I began to try to learn more about forgiveness. And these are some things that I learned. The first thing is that forgiveness is for us. We do forgiveness for ourselves. It's great when we can share that with other people and forgive other people and all, but, but we, we primarily need to forgive for us. I did not forgive Robert Lee Willie for him. I did it for me. When I tried to explain that and share that, because people did start seeing a difference in me and wondering what was going on, they would say, what are you talking about? What do you mean? You forgave him. He didn't deserve your forgiveness. They were right. He didn't, he didn't deserve my forgiveness. Just as I don't deserve God's forgiveness. I also, though, didn't deserve to remain in the prison that I had imprisoned myself in. Robert Lee Willie may have been behind bars all those years, but I was in a prison all my own, and I deserved the freedom that came with forgiveness. That night, Robert Lee Willie got death. He died never knowing that I would begin a process of forgiving him. He didn't benefit. I was the one who benefited. He got death, and I got a new lease on life. The second thing is that forgiveness is a process. Sometimes it can happen immediately. The process is very quick. A second, you can forgive something. But often, when the hurts are deep, when the wounds have been severe, it's a process that can take a long time. I do not recommend the five-year plan I was on. Okay? There's a lot of damage that happens in our lives and a lot of life that we miss during that time. But it is a process. And my best illustration of this has to do with Robert Lee Willie's mother and not him. 
and not Joe Vaccaro, but the mother. Robert Lee Willie's mother was a woman that I hated for a long time. I hated her far beyond forgiving Robert Lee Willie. I held a grudge against her because, you see, Robert Lee Willie's mother testified in court against me. She got up on the witness stand and she lied. She told people that I was a girlfriend of Robert's, that I had been to their house many times. She had seen us together. These things I was saying about him couldn't possibly be true. And as a 16-year-old, I was worried about what everybody thought. And so I, I hated her for that. Years later, when my son was born, I was up in the middle of the night one night, one of those 2 a.m., 3 a.m. feedings. I was holding my precious baby boy and just staring down at his face, basking in that joy of motherhood. That's how you know it was my first child. <laughs> that only happens with the first child. And I began to think about Robert Lee Willie and the fact that he was a baby one time also. Now, it wasn't unusual for me to think about Robert Lee Willie because at that point, hardly a day had ever gone by, I don't think, that I had, had not thought about him. It didn't hurt like it did before, but I would think about him. But I remember trying to push those thoughts out of my mind I remember saying, God, take these thoughts away because, because he and his memory, his memory is not welcome in the presence of my child. This is a special time. But then I began to think about his mother and how there was a time when she held her newborn baby boy also. I don't profess to know what her hopes and dreams were for him. But just as I had hopes and dreams for my son, she too had hopes and dreams for hers. And the hopes and dreams that she had for her baby boy certainly did not include him growing up to become a vicious murderer and dying in the electric chair in the state of Louisiana. No mother could ever think that or want that, have a desire like that. And so my heart softened towards her. I felt it. I felt this physical release almost as my heart softened towards this woman that I had hated for so long. I don't know that I would have made the same choices that she made, but I remember thinking that I hoped I never had to. I didn't forgive her yet because it's a process. Fast forward. The movie Dead Man Walking comes out, which is based on my story. It's actually based on Sister Helen Prejean's accounts of two, um, being the spiritual advisor with two death row inmates. But, but a lot of it is woven around what happened to me. This movie comes out and I went to see it. I almost didn't go see it, but not knowing what was in it was worse for me than anything that could be in it. I sat there and watched that movie, and in that movie, there's a scene where the mother of the convicted murderer and the man who's about to die goes to the prison to say her final goodbyes. It was very much like it was in real life. The character 
in the movie was based on Robert Lee Willie. And the character of the woman and this experience was based on his mother. This woman, in real life and in the movie, had to go to this prison knowing that her son was going to be electrocuted that night. She had to say goodbye without ever touching him or being able to wrap her arms around him and hold him one last time. This mother walked out of that room through the metal detectors, out of the building they call the death house, and past the barbed wire fences without ever touching her son. My heart broke for her in that movie theater in Covington, Louisiana that night. My heart broke and I was flooded with a feeling of forgiveness that so overwhelmed me for her. That was my takeaway from that movie. The rest of it I may as well have not even seen. I left that movie theater and all I wanted to do was go to this woman for a few reasons. I wanted to tell her that I was okay. I wanted to tell her that I had forgiven her son and that I had forgiven her for the things that she had said. But more than anything, I wanted to go to this woman and I wanted to drop down on my knees and beg her for her forgiveness. That I was unable over all these years to feel any type of empathy or sympathy for her. And that I had held a grudge against her for so long. And that probably throughout the years, I had probably kept other people from caring about her. I found out that she had died of cancer a couple of years earlier. I would never be able to fully complete that process. Forgiveness is an act of the will. Corey Ten Boom was held prisoner in a concentration camp by the Nazis. She was freed from the camp, and years later, she was speaking at a church about her experience and about forgiveness. And she was approached by one of the guards from the prison. He identified himself, and she said that her whole body went hard and cold because her sister had died in that concentration camp. The guard went on to tell her that his life had changed, that God had forgiven him, but that he desired her forgiveness. She said she was stunned, and it was the hardest thing she had ever done. But she wrote later, that she learned that forgiveness is an act of the will that can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. God commands us to forgive. He doesn't just ask us to forgive. And sometimes we need to do it even when we don't feel like it, even when it's not the easiest thing to do, when it's the hardest 
thing to do. But he knows what's better for us than we know ourselves because he cares about us. He cares about our healing. He cares about our life. He wants us to live our lives abundantly. And God knows that as long as we are harboring unforgiveness, it's taken up valuable space in our hearts and it's affecting every relationship that we have. The final thing that I've learned that I like to share about forgiveness is the most important thing, I think. Forgiveness is for everyone. It's for everyone. God came for the sick. He came for the sinners. He came to heal all of the people in need. He came for the people who've made bad decisions. He didn't just come for the precious lady who's been teaching Sunday school to kindergartners for the last 40 years in the same room every Sunday who we know is a saint and has a place in heaven. God came for people like me. For people like you. Jesus was sent for the Robert Lee Willies and the Joseph Jesse Vaqueros of this world. And if I'm a believer, I can't pick and choose what I decide to believe in God's word and his message to me. I have to believe it all. And if I believe it all, then I need to believe that God loved Robert Lee Willie as much as he loves me. That was hard to swallow. And it took me a while. And it was something that I had to aggressively pursue to believe. I had to pray about it and ask God's help. I was asked one time on national television, in an interview on national television, and I didn't even remember it because I tend to get real nervous, you know, when I talk and stuff. And I was interviewed and and I was asked the question, "So, so are you to the point where When you get to heaven one day, you're ready to see Robert Lee Willie there? And I said on national television, I'm not there yet. And I sat there and I saw it with the rest of anybody else who chose to tune in to watch it. And I thought, what did I just say? What did I just say? God used my own words to convict me. I wasn't ready to admit And to believe that God loved Robert Lee Willie enough that he sent his son to die for Robert Lee Willie and that if Robert Lee Willie believed and answered the call of God even in the final minutes or the final seconds of his life, then yes, he most assuredly is in heaven where I'll see him one day. Not only do I need to believe that, I need to hope for that. And today, I do hope for that. And I have enough faith in my God to know that when I get to heaven, it's not going to be a problem. Peace came to me also eventually. Complete peace. As I learned more and practiced more 
about forgiveness. I felt it more and more in my life. Joy came eventually with the understanding of God's purpose in my life. There's a story in Genesis about Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers because they were jealous of him. But God blessed Joseph and he elevated him to a high and powerful position in Egypt where one day his brothers who had committed this evil act against him had to go and go before him for their own survival. But Joseph wasn't angry. Joseph had forgiven them. He explained to them that they were not the ones who had sent him to Egypt, but that God was. You see, Joseph's absence of bitterness, his presence of joy, and his willingness to forgive was because he understood God's purpose in his life. And it was when I finally understood God's purpose in my life that I began to feel joy again. My purpose is to share the comfort that I have received from God with other people. That's why I speak here. That's why I share my story. I've been comforted. I've been given a new lease on life. I've been saved. I have joy again, and I want to share that with other people. God may or may not have caused the things that happened to me. I used to wonder, why did he cause these things? Maybe he caused it. Maybe he allowed it. I don't live there anymore. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that because it happened, my father has been able to use me in a way that he wouldn't have been able to before to bring comfort and good news to other people. Sometimes we allow the circumstances of this world and the things that happen to us in this life, we allow those things to affect our faith, our relationship with God, our relationship with other people. When this happens, when these times happen and we start questioning our faith, we start questioning God's presence in our lives. Is he still here? Why did he let this happen? I ask that you stop and be still. Remember who our God is. Because he is a God whose power is magnificent. His mercy is unfailing. And his love is boundless. He loved and cared for us so much that he sent his only son to walk among people just like us, ordinary people, sinners, people in need of a savior. Jesus came to save us from our sins, to heal our wounds, and to give us hope and a new life. Let's let him do that here this morning. Would you pray with me? Father God, I'd like to lift you up in prayer this morning and 
I'd like to lift up the people here in prayer this morning to you. I'd like to thank you for your power, your love, your mercy, your grace. I wanna thank you for the greatest gift that the world has ever known, the gift of your son to us so that we may be saved. Father, only you know all of the things that the people here this morning are dealing with. I just ask that you begin the process of healing in them, help them to understand that forgiveness is your gift and it's a way that they can heal. Maybe it's someone that they know, someone close to them. Father, whether, whether we need to, to ask someone's forgiveness or we need to give forgiveness, help us to do that today. It's so simple, but it really is difficult. It's a simple concept, but it's hard to do for us. You know it's not our natural way. Thank you for your presence here and your blessing on everyone here today. Amen. Amen. Would you guys say thank you, Debbie, for sharing your story? You got here for a second. Thank you. Stay here for a second. Okay. Debbie, you you went back so uh, so long ago in time. By the way, thank you for your boldness and your transparency. The Lord really is using your story, redeeming it constantly. Give everybody just a snapshot. Like where where are you in life now? What's going on? Uh, tell us just a moment about your kids. Okay. Uh, let's see. Today. Uh, I've been married for almost 29 years, okay, <laughs> for almost 29 years to my husband, Brad, who is here. We have two children. My son, Connor, is 25. My daughter, Courtney, is 22. Uh, my son just moved back to Knoxville, where we live now. Uh, we had been in Texas for a while. He went to college there. He just moved back, so we are thrilled to have him home. Um, I'm, as Ben said earlier, I'm, I'm a realtor now. I was a teacher for 30 years, but I'm a realtor now. So I was actually able to help my son buy his very first house, and he closed on that Friday. So he'll be around for a while. And um, my daughter's in college, and we, um, I have a blessed life. I really do. Um, I, 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 sometimes I have to pinch myself, really, <laughs> when, I, when I think about where I was. Some, sometimes I think, you know, if I had just had some inkling how great the story was going to turn out. I may not have just fallen off so, so deep into despair, but... Um, you know. and, and you shared so much practical stuff, but if, if there's somebody here today listening or even online and um, they're just stuck, like they hear you as you process and they're thinking, I don't know, I'm still in that dark place where you are. What, what would you say to them? Like what's something they could do or something they should know like right now? I, I think... Um, the first thing is, is to, obviously it's to pray, to, to, you know, I always say, you know, first I, I needed to pray for myself, um, that God would make me ready to be able to, uh, to hear what he need, what he wanted me to do in my life. And, and then to begin to pray for the other people, um, around me that, uh, you know, the, the, the other people, not, and, and I want to be clear about this because I usually have a little more time to talk about this, but not for people to change, but, but to pray for good things for the people that have hurt us. And, and I've, I've got this amazing story that I don't have time to share about someone who did that and how it turned out. 
But I think sometimes trying to also empathize with, uh, with that other person, what led them to where they are, how did they get there, to understand that, you know, the people that do these things to us, you know, sometimes they are Christians, but oftentimes they're not. So how do we, un- how do we expect them to know better? If, if I'm a believer and I make mistakes in my life every day, why do I expect anything better from other people? Yeah. So, and, and the other thing is to seek out counseling from Christian counselors. Go to, go to a pastor of a church and ask what to do. Yeah. Seek out someone else that is in a better place than you are. Don't go to your friends that are having just as much trouble as you are. Yeah. Go, seek out wise counsel yeah. from someone. There, there are so, I mean, this church is a fabulous place to start, but there's so many other churches out there. Walk through the door and ask to talk to somebody. That's awesome. Yeah. One more time, give it up for Debbie if you don't mind. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you. Wow. Well, uh, earlier in the service, I asked you to fill out a connect card. Would you grab it out? Let's take a couple steps together. Um, It could be that you're listening today and you don't have an active relationship with Jesus. Debbie talked about the fact that God sent his one and only son. Around here, we talk about the power of making Jesus your Savior and Lord. So next step A says, hey, today I want to make Jesus my Savior and Lord. The Bible says you admit that you're a sinner and you ask him to be the leader or the Lord of your life. In a minute, we're going to pray about that. I'm going to give you a chance to do that. But if you feel compelled, would you just take your pen and check next step A? When the offering bucket comes around a bit later, put it in there. And we just want to send you an email about what it is to be a child of God. And then if you have any questions, you can just email back, all right? And the next step B, I want to be baptized. Our baptism next is on Easter Sunday. Check the box. That's how we begin a conversation. And I'm wondering about next step C here. How many people would say, pray for me as I deal with some painful memories? So we're just going to send you an encouraging thought on Monday about your situation and about the God who's always present and powerful. If you want to tell us what it is, you can use the back of your connect card. If not, just check the box. We'll pray for you. The next step, D says, I need some help with my personal finances. Part of our mission in our church is to help families thrive. And so we have incredible stories of people who were upside down financially and they took Financial Peace University, offered right here, and they literally changed the direction of not only their finances, but the emotional well-being many times in their marriage. If you have information about that, check the box. Today's the last Sunday to do that, to be on board with this cycle. And the next step E is our grow classes, four weeks of development spiritually. If you want information about that, you just check the box, then you can click through, all right? Why don't you put that aside for just a moment? And if you call this church home, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. If you're our guest today, please don't feel compelled to give. You're certainly welcome to, but our, your gift to us was your presence today. We're just really, really glad that you're here. We were able to, by the way, welcome you with hot coffee in a warm place and that sort of thing because people around here are faithful to give. Four Corners Church, you're one of the most generous groups of people I've ever known. And uh, Debbie mentioned getting Christian counseling. So uh, last year, we spent in this church approaching $10,000 in paying for people to receive professional counseling. If you're in a situation and you call this church home or you have a family member and you call this church home who is upside down and you don't have insurance and you can't pay for it, if you'll reach out to us, we'll help you get started in that. And the faithful people of this church make it happen. I can't tell you how grateful I am, Four Corners, that you are so generous in things like our Christmas offering and our upcoming Easter offering that pays for stuff like this, that without reserve, we can look at people and say, we will help you get the help you need. 
So thank you for that. It's making a practical difference. And I know Debbie's story may seem extreme, but I'm gonna tell you in this room, there are people who had deep hurts. Some of them not completely different than some of hers. And if you're stuck, if somebody you love is stuck, reach out to us in your connect card or an email and we will help you get started in the right direction. And we can because you have been gracious and generous. Let's pray about our next steps on our offering right now. Then we're gonna stand and sing this closing song before we go. Would you pray with me? Father, I take a moment right now and I lift up the men and women who are declaring, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Would you save me? I trust that you can not only run the universe, but I trust you to run my life. And I believe that you're the son of God. And I trust the work you did for me on the cross and in your resurrection to secure my relationship to my heavenly father. Father, I also pray for those that are taking steps today, steps of acknowledging that they still have hurt and pain to deal with. I pray that your spirit would comfort, but it would also spark them to begin a journey to release and be free to forgive, to move on in the life that you have for them. And Lord, would you bless all of our steps and would you bless this offering as we use it to serve your kingdom and the people in this community, not only here in this part of the, world, of the country, but literally around the world. Thank you for the generosity of this place. We give it all to you. We pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen and amen.